This is Getting Past the Subtitles. My name is Sean Peel. This is DK Lee. And we are in week number two of our retrospective on Akira Kurosawa. Um, last week, we watched Sanshiro Sukata, which was all about an all-powerful judoka slaying everybody around, you know, take, <laughs> taking out all those petty jujitsukas. Like, let me show you judo. Uh, pretty, pretty good movie. Uh, pretty fun. Definitely a surprise on my part because the main thing we we're talking about was how sort of simple and how sort of simple of a story it was uh, fundamentally, you know, kind of genre in a way. But definitely a good one. Go check that one out. But now we are jumping quite a few years, actually, like basically a decade, like on the dot almost. Um, so 1943 is when Sanshiro premiered and 1952 is when he directed and released Ikiru. And this movie is 100% different from the last, <laughs> from what we watched. Um, so yeah, so by this time, Kurosawa has definitely made quite a few movies since Sanshiro, about 12 movies in total. So he definitely has quite a bit of experience under his belt by this point. And yeah, I'd definitely say like a lot of Kurosawa-esque-ness in there, right? Like, probably really knows himself as a director so definitely kind of feeling the groove you know he kind of knows his thing and i read a lot that this movie is i think for him probably his greatest work that he thinks and for a lot of other people and like film critics probably share the same like i even think steven spielberg said that this is like one of his top movies of all time as well so a lot of great expectations coming from here yeah for me if I were to rate this movie, this movie would be near perfection. Like, it would be 10 out of 10 for me. <laughs> see, I think see. It, it's just that good um, in terms of just the story, in terms of how he utilizes nearly every scene to work mm. in service of the story. The analogies, the metaphors, the, the scenery, the mise-en-scene, like everything... It just serves the story so well and perfectly that there's really so little for me to like to find some fault with it. Yeah. I'm really just amazed by just the level of depth that you're able to put into such a simple story and still keep it engaging and still question one of the biggest questions that we have as as human beings. Yeah, it's definitely a huge tackle in like thematics i mean the movie is just like answering the question of like you know what does it mean to live essentially and like finding purpose in life and this was a very interesting and very really good example of showing that in a film you know and i think the movie like it serves so well because it it's like it's just like the meat on the bone of a film like it's such of like a filet mignon because it, it like you said like everything is just supports the story so well like there's there's no fatty parts there's no like out of course plots or anything like everything is really there's focused nothing on wasted the story. exactly yeah. exactly everything is really curated just for the story and really enhances it so i think that's why it's really good like anybody could watch this movie and take something away from it without you know having having any doubts or having any questions like it's it's pretty forward and understanding in that sense like you, you'll understand like this is definitely a theme about of life and death, you know, like what it means to live. My first experience with this movie was, so again, as I said previously, this is my first experience with uh, Akira Kurosawa and pretty interesting one from that. Because when I used to think of Akira Kurosawa, you know, it's like Seven Samurai and just like samurai themed films, essentially. Like, oh yeah, Akira is like the pioneer of like Western American movies, but in Japan so with just like samurais kind of thing, right? So when I watched this, it's highly different from anything like that. It's, it's just a very human story. And it was really well. It was done really well. I saw it, like, with, I think, uh, at a friend's house. Definitely watch this on HBO Max, guys. It's on there. And the quality is pretty great. Actually, it looks phenomenal on HBO Max. But yeah, it was definitely an experience. And, like, it gets better by the second act, definitely, personally. It just gets more engaging, just, like, as a story, you know? 
because as we can kind of talk later, like it, it switches gears and it just keeps like the interest up in a way. What about you? What are some of your first impressions? This was my first time watching it through this podcast. And I was really blown away just by the sheer technical masterpiece that it is. Mm. The way that the story is structured, the way that he uses the frame, the way that he uses the acting, and the way that he just created the story that continually has layers and layers that support its thesis about what it means to be alive. And every scene works to show a different aspect of that. Mm -hmm. And every character is kind of a embodiment of a certain kind of life. And it kind of asks the question to the audience, from all of this that you've seen, what do you think life is about? And what do you think it means to be alive? Mm -hmm. And I think that asking that question to the audience and the I think the film does give you a kind of answer but it's really up to the audience to decide and I think that's the beauty right. of this film yeah I think you know ultimately it it's I mean the meta is like you know the answer to that question just falls to the individual per se but the answer like in this film is what it worked for uh, Kanji you know himself and so, you know, he finds fulfilling in through his work and that's how he kind of leaves his mark and feels fulfilled. But maybe that's not necessarily the same for anybody else. But, you know, we, you kind of get the sense of like the whole meta through his journey, right? Of Like really trying to figure it out and finding like, oh, yeah, this is not this doesn't work as a meaning for me or this isn't really the answer that I'm looking well, for. Well, it's, it's a question that, you know, people eventually ask themselves and people who know that they're going to die ask it right it's something that is so apparent in people who you know know that they're going to die that sometimes like we live as if we're invincible or we live as if we're going to live forever but that is actually not the case right you know every person is going to die but you know what do we do with our lives is something that i think this movie is trying to tackle and to you know ask the question like are we living are we yeah. actually living or are we just being, you know? Yeah. Mm. Like sometimes we go through the motions of life but don't really actually engage in living. Right, right. And I think I think this movie is trying to, you know, highlight that, you know, like especially 100%. in Kanji where he realizes after 30 years that what he's been doing right. it was not actually living but more maintaining the status quo and being there protecting his own little you know zone right right like the first thing you see is is basically like their narrator establishing that like that's that's really really like the cornerstone of of the movie is like basically don't waste your life and he's like and it's showing you here's this guy named kanji who's working in this place for like 30 years and he's done nothing at all like even in his workplace he's just kind of been floating by you know i love how it says um the narrator is like this isn't even worth watching for you guys. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, just making... It, it would be boring if we started the movie here, so... Right, right. So he's like... Let's move on a little <laughs> further down the line, you know? Yeah. Which is an interesting, like, thing to where the f- very first thing you see is... Here is this x-ray of, of this guy having cancer. And then it shows you kanji. And so, you know, now it kind of keeps things going. Um, but let's... Let me not get too ahead of myself here. Let me just Let me just lay out what the film is straight... Um, so yeah, so like we're saying this, the movie is really following Kanji Watanabe, this elderly guy who's been working for the, uh, public affairs as a section chief for nearly 30 years by this time. He's basically done nothing with his life except work. And even in his job, like we said, he hasn't really done anything meaningful within the company. And the narrator kind of says like, he's, you know, kind of tried, but nothing really stuck. And he just kind of floated by through the years. But in this point in time, Kanji is feeling sick and he goes to the doctor and he's kind of unconventionally told that he has stomach cancer. When he gets there, a fellow patient tells him the truth about, you know, the doctor's lying about giving diagnosis and that they'll claim, oh yeah, it's just a mild ulcer, but, you know, no need to worry. But the reality is, is that 
it'll actually be stomach cancer. Um, and the reason why they do this, and it was pretty popular back then within, you know, between Japanese medical in those terms, is because when, if you got stomach cancer, it's basically a death sentence. So their mindset was like, you know, if we tell them something lighter, then they won't be affected mentally by the trauma of knowing that they'll have limit, limited time to live, and that there's nothing to do about it. So they think like, they just, you know, went out thinking that it was nothing that they would, you know, not be weighed down, but like maybe live more. Let me just say, I think that is one thing that I have a criticism with this, with this movie is (laughs) I think that's illegal to do Mm. where like you're telling the patient that it's something else rather than what it actually is. I don't think anywhere in, you know, especially in the U S you would see a doctor misdiagnose something or or not tell the the uh, patient Uh about what it actually is because you feel bad for that person you know that would never happen because you need to tell the person what it is you know you need you need to know now i think that was like the one thing i was like oh that's kind of uh sketchy (laughs) this doctor is kind of sketchy you don't want to go there (laughs) i mean what i read overall yeah what i read and like it may or may not be true but like but that was kind of a normal thing back in like the 50s within japan society like specifically um definitely here wouldn't fly by and probably today it probably isn't the same anymore right right. um but just something that you know was probably the status quo with in the past but yeah i mean that's that's just wrong <laughs> i mean flat out he knew anyway though which is like exactly like either way the cancer is still there, and I think yeah, even yeah. if you told him the truth, it would still impact it. The the film, I'm saying, the yeah, same yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I mean, it does add a level of intrigue uh-huh. when he finds out in this like roundabout way, right? Through another patient who's like, I got experience in this, <laughs> like, kind yeah, of in an odd sense, you know. So yeah, so I mean, he finds out anyway. Um. So so like his time limit is like six months essentially and so with knowing this kanji himself thinks he has like six months to a year but just about the same after knowing he kind of like leaves the hospital in despair and he kind of goes missing like to to his family and he doesn't return to work for a couple days um but he's basically like drinking himself silly at some bar as you will see um that's when he meets a novelist someone who's drinking at the bar and he shares a drink with him and he kind of unloads, you know, his truth on this guy. And he's this, uh, the novelist is, you know, taken back by it. He's kind of feels very sympathetic for his story. And Kanji requests that he wants to know how the novelist would blow all this money in the night, basically. And the novelist basically obliges by him because of, you know, how he feels sympathetic and is moved by his story. So they go out on this night of like drinking and dancing and more drinking and sad singing. After the night, Kanji returns back home the next morning, pretty hungover. And a coworker of his from the public affairs, this young woman named Odegiri, um, finds him wandering around and is kind of in a rush because she wants to resign from the company. But uh, she needs uh, Kanji's seal to do so. So he invites her to his home in order to to do that. And when he comes home, he has a son. And his son is married to his daughter-in-law. And they kind of mistakenly think that Odegiri is his mistress. Which leads to a lot of uh, confrontation down the line, basically. Long story short, essentially. But between Kanji and Odegiri, basically go out. And Kanji, like, treats her out to, like, lunch. And they go out to, like, all these attractions. And it's basically, like, kind of going out on a date. But, like, mixed motives, one can say. And pretty much, like, I think the viewers can assume, like, this kind of keeps happening. And just up until, like, Odigiri feels weird about it. And about these ongoing outings. And addresses the issue with Kanji. And when they go out for dinner one night, Kanji reveals about like his loneliness and his desire for purpose to keep on living kind of you know quoting he has like this hole in his heart 
you know, he thinks that like his way, he's thinking like, I think that hanging out with this young girl, Odegiri, is like, you're young, like you're full of youth and such. And so you should have the answer to this, right? Because like, I'm old or whatever, but she really doesn't like her answer is, you know, I just eat and work. Like, that's all I do. You know, I make these, when she, when she resigned, she went to like this uh, toy making manufacturer and she makes like, like toy bunnies, basically. And she's saying that she finds like pleasure in making those essentially. And she kind of proposes like, well, maybe you should find something that you enjoy working with or something that you'll enjoy through work. But knowing that he works for public affairs and it's like a crappy company, he's like, that's probably not the case. But he has, a, he actually ends up having an epiphany like, well, maybe there is something meaningful I could do in public affairs and that it's an actual possibility. So right around there is when the movie uh, basically time skips to about five months and Kanji has already passed away. Um, and the new setting is at his wake. Um, before this, though, Kanji makes it his mission to address the leaking culvert that has created a cesspool within uh, Kuzue, right? Kuzue? Kuroe. Kuroe, in the town of Kuroe. And basically, a bunch of like locals, like a bunch of elderly women, they are the ones that propose this issue. And they propose that they should build a park uh, within this area since it's like a pretty open space and so Kanji takes it upon himself to basically enact that like as his job so in the time skip we find out that he actually in fact succeeded but he's the issue is now is he's not properly credited for it the top officials mainly the mayor deputy claims that it was an effort of each department equally quote-unquote or rather mainly like himself, honestly. During the wake, he's like surrounded by a bunch of his old co-workers along with his son and daughter-in-law. And all the co-workers that work with Kanji reflect on the efforts of the project as they kind of debate, was it really him or it was... Because a lot of them think like, it wasn't him single-handedly who did it, it was actually all of us. But one person kind of stands out and says, no, it was actually a Kanji. And so they kind of recount the project and how it came about and they all basically realize among themselves that it was in fact kanji that was the centerpiece of this proposal and basically single-handedly convinced everybody in every department to including the deputy mayor to greenlight the project and then they basically like realize their mistakes and they make vows to be better and to like push the bureaucracy to do better and like change the system kind of but by the end of it nothing really changes um and yeah it's pretty much how it ends um post his death i think we could talk about performance first the actor that to credit him takashi shimura plays kanji watanabe and that guy does an amazing job playing this character i think the one thing that sticks with me the most about this movie is just like all the close-ups of kanji and like his expressions like his mannerisms his voice, the way he walks, and just, like, all these things, like, add up to, like, make this very devastated, timid character. She's kind of, like, fumbling through life and, like, trying to find the answer. Like, so many, like, haunting, just, like, facial expressions and images of him that, like, really kind of add up to the pool. Seeing the contrast between his sadness and his lifelessness right. and seeing his effort and inspiration to do something and actually make a difference. Him playing those two different contrasting roles, I think really just shows how wonderfully he played this character. An example is like during the doctor scene where he's sitting down in the lobby and the man comes up to him and he just starts talking to him. And then he starts talking about the man who just went into the doctor's room, he has stomach cancer too. And they're not going to tell him about the stomach cancer, but they're just going to tell him that it's just an ulcer and that, you know, you can just eat whatever you want as long as you're smart about it. And, right. and he's like telling him about all these stuff. And like Kanji in the beginning, he, you know, he lends him the seat and he's like, oh, sit down right here next <laughs> to me. As the guy is talking more and more and more, he starts to like move slowly and slowly an inch like away from him right because 
his realization that this is the same thing that he is affected with, he like turns towards the camera and you can see his face in like shock and devastated, like mortified look on his face. Right. And it's just a perfect summation of his state at that moment. Yeah. This is just like one scene of what he is portraying, but like every scene is like that. And he's just able to play the character in such a way that you just feel bad for him like the whole way through. <laughs> right, right. But then like in other moments, you just feel so like, like he just is actually like living and you can feel that in his eyes or like in the way that he smiles or in the way that he just is looking out into the distance. There's a moment when one of the workers, co-workers recounts a moment where Watanabe is um, inspecting the playground and they're yeah. starting to work and constructing the playground and Watanabe like falls and the women come, the Kuroi women come and like they help him out and sit him down yeah. and they give him a glass of water. Right. And he's like looking out into the playground with this facial expression of like, this is my child, like this is my baby. <laughs> right. Like right. what he's doing right now. And like those moments, he just did such a good job. Mm. in in portraying that and there's another there's so many moments that i can talk about it's <laughs> yeah it's crazy like there's another moment when watanabe is walking back into his office but there's like these thugs because <laughs> these guys are lobbying for that area where they're trying to build the playground to be yeah. a red light district and basically watanabe is blocking them from doing that yeah and so these gangsters come and try to intimidate kanji and the gangsters are like dude, if you go through with this, you know, I'm going to, you know, basically I'm going to hurt you, right? And and they're like, do you value your life? And at that moment, like, Kanji smiles. Like, he's actually happy with that question because that question is telling him that what he's doing matters and right. what he's doing is actively affecting the world and that he feels like he's affecting the world and he has some kind of purpose in the world. And just by that one smile, you can tell that. And it's just a beautiful way of portraying it. He doesn't say anything in that moment, but <laughs> right, right. you know exactly what he's feeling and, and what he's going through. Yeah. So much is communicated just like just through him, just through like silence. It's funny how like, like not only that, just how easily you can understand the moment. Like you can just read it without having to look too deeply into it. If either he's like earnest or he's sad or, or he, he's happy or... You know what I mean? Just like with anything of like in that moment, like it's all the context you need is like through him and in that setting, you know, it's, it is really masterful in that sense, you know? Like you could almost have this as a silent film and I think you could still Probably. understand <laughs> a lot of, of what's going on. Right. Just right. by his mannerism, just by like how he, you know, portrays himself. And I think that just goes to show how well the story is written as well as his acting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sonny, like, I mean, a key moment for me is, like, when he, this is pretty much after he gets diagnosed and he goes back home for the first night. And this is when, actually, we get introduced to his son and daughter-in-law. And they're, like, yeah. basically colluding to take his retirement money to, like, move out, buy a house, blah, blah, blah. Like, they just want it for his money. And he's, like, sitting in their room and they, like, he, like, gets creeped out and notices and turns on the light. And it's, like, this haunting, like, super sad, like, struck face that he has and he's looking down on his knees just sitting like a golem in that corner you know almost like a look of betrayal right 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 and like I, you find that face like or similar to a lot because i feel like you know when he when he gets revealed something or you know he's reacting uh negative to something like the feeling that he gets is being like backstabbed whether it's like you know from the doctors and getting that diagnosed and they kind of lie to him right Cause they, you know, that patient tells him and he's like, oh my God. And then he actually gets told to them and he's like, earnestly, like, just tell me the truth kind of thing. Yeah. You know, or the, in that moment when he goes home, just like between people and life, he, it's like almost just backstabbing feels, you know? And he mm -hmm. just has just that look on him where he just feels like devastated. Like he'd been robbed in some way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just so telling just in every way. It's so telling. Yeah. I mean, really, you can split the movie into, like, two parts, right? There's, like, the first part and then the second part. And the first part is is really just Kanji's journey into seeking a purpose in life. So he gets this bad news, and then he's kind of, like, lost. And he re realizes pretty soon, like, in that scene where he's in the bar and he's talking with the novelist, he pretty much knows, like, right away, like, 
what have I been doing with my life all these years? Like, you know, he's like, I've been working for that company for whatever. And now doing nothing basically. And then now I can, he's like, he admits that he hadn't even bought a drink all of his life up until that moment. He's saying that he's like taking revenge on himself for not living as much life as he should be. And I think what's interesting about this movie is that him like trying to find the answers of getting the most out of life through these people. So like in that scene, it's, you know, is it going out and partying, right? He, that's what he asks the novelist is like, what would you do with 50,000 yen essentially? And they go out and do like, you know, drinking and partying and go to strip clubs, go to to jazz bars, you know, like everywhere. (laughs) He's, what was that like near the end he just like starts hollering like a whale through the streets <laughs> like well, i don't even know what that reaction is what did you read into that moment when it was like the very last moment of that night when he stops the car and he goes to throw up and then like the novelist is like what do you go do and the women are like i think i want to go throw up in like the corner or something and he like immediately gets out of the car and worried about his well-being mm. and then there's like this exchange of glances between them i'm not really sure how to read into that moment specifically i think for me that moment is a realization that what he's doing right now is not fulfilling him mm. right. for me i think it because after that moment he goes out i don't know if he threw up or whatever but he comes back into the car and they start driving and the women are like hey i'm bored like i want to sing and they start singing yeah right, right and you can visibly see in in Kanji and the novelist's face of like discomfort. And the novelist feels bad for Kanji at that moment. Like he's right, just like, right. oh man, like this sucks. He's not feeling good at all. And like these women are singing and like this is just making him feel even worse <laughs> because of that contrast, right? Between his eventual death and them just singing like it's nothing. Like there's no care in the world. Mm-hmm. And that contrast I think is really eating at him. It's like it's like re-sobering, right? Like they're like initially they're like the answer is like, yeah, like, like, let's just make the best out of this night. Like, kind of do right. everything that you wish you could have done as sort of, like, younger days kind of thing. And then they do all those things and they get pissed drunk. And then he goes to throw up and he's like, oh my god, like, is he alright? And then they both, like, sober up in that exchange. Like, Yeah, that's, like, uh, the sobering moment, yeah. Yeah. And then they get back into the car and it's like, yeah, this this isn't the answer. Like, it's this is just, like, dumb, essentially, right? Yeah. And And he, you know, like, the day after, he starts walking back to his house. Yeah. And I just love that scene too. Like every moment is not wasted. Like seriously, in this film, <laughs> there is no moment that's wasted. He's just walking back home, and as he's walking, children are just running all over the place. Mm. You know, I guess going going to school, right? And like just that contrast between him walking slowly and these energetic children just running around and just being so happy while mm. this one old man is just like <laughs> walking, slouching, and like walking yeah, yeah. towards the house, like. Just that imagery, like every moment, there's some kind of imagery like that that just encapsulates the whole story in a frame. And that's the beauty of this film. Yeah, I mean, like right after that, I mean, like we basically immediately move into Odegiri after that. And I mean, it's kind of fitting, right? Because like there's this portrayal of like energetic kids and this busyness of like the town. And basically just like youth is like the word that comes to mind. And then here comes Odegiri. And then like basically she kind of like captates the rest of the story all the way through she she's like the top energetic you know what i mean it's so crazy the epitome Every, of energetic there's there's a scene that i like like scream every time watching it's when he's like oh you, you can do the resignation tomorrow and then we can like do stuff today and then they go out to like it doesn't really say what kind of machine it is but it's like kind of like a claw almost i guess yeah, and yeah. put in coins and she like puts in a coin and then she like laughs so hard and so like squeals laugh just that scene i'm like dude you like acting like you're 10 but you're probably like 23 or something (laughs) the first scene when she tells the joke yeah i kind of cringed because (laughs) of the way that she was laughing in that moment i was like dude what are you doing right now (laughs) like to be honest she kind of annoyed me but yes. I think that's the beauty of her character. Right, right, right. She's so glaringly annoying that she feels like something different, right? And, right, and that's right. the point of her, right? Like, she is this life force that Kanji just 
doesn't have and doesn't know. Right, right. Once, you know, they're together and when once they're interacting with each other, uh-huh. there's this real interesting chemistry between them where he's just the polar opposite of this woman, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's very childlike. Like, uh, to me, yeah. I mean, she's a representation of youth, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I, one part is, like, uh, with the novelist is, like, just going out and, like, living and having fun. And then Odegiri introduces just, like, the desire of youth again and, like, wanting yeah. to re- reclaim his youth and, like, or, like, finding an answer in her youth or something. like. Youth. Or a sense of purity or a sense of, like, right, innocence, right. right? And, like, and even to that, I think, like, when it comes to their relationship, there, I think there's just so many ways that you can like even read into that. As weird as like just the relationship is and kind of thing, I always saw it as like this because he what he brings up with her is his relationship with his son and how like basically there is no relationship with the son. And he thinks like his son like basically casts him out as like a father and you know just kind of does whatever to like, get away from him. And him hanging out with Odigiri is, is a way of, like, having a father and child relationship, you know, in a way. Like, basically substituting yeah. Odigiri for his son, you know? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of uh, annotations that you can take away from those scenes. Mm-hmm. As cringy yet, as as they may be at times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it worked really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you think of that last scene between them when he when she's just like fed up with this shit and he's Dude, that that's my favorite scene of, really? of this movie. It just played so well. Like they're in that cafe, right? Mm. And in the background there's these like women and, and people who are like all like happy and there's like a party going on in the back. And then in the front there's this two couple who are like, you know, lovey dovey couple and then you just have Kanji and Odogiri in the middle right. with this awkward relationship, you know, and and that's the moment where Kanji spills the beans and tells her that he has cancer and that he wants to do something in life but he doesn't know what. Yeah, and he yeah. asks her, like, what can I do to have your life, you know, like have that like spark in my life? And she's just like I don't, I don't know, know anything. I just eat. I just I just eat and work. Right. I just make these like little bunnies, and I feel like I'm connected with children because I make these bunnies. Yeah, yeah. And and that's the moment when Kanji is actually reborn. That's yeah. the moment when his rebirth happens. The whole scene supports that because they start singing "Happy Birthday" right. as Kanji realizes that, and he goes. Um, to his workplace he's like I'm, I'm gonna change I'm gonna do something with my life now mm-hmm. and that's the moment when the people all around them start singing happy birthday and the happy birthday song comes out and then the change between the birthday girl going up and kanji going down like it's so beautiful like, it's so perfect right. that scene just encapsulates that moment perfectly and then the scene right after when he actually goes into the office and he starts telling people what to do and he's like, hey, we're gonna, I'm going to go check out the playground. Yeah. Uh, can you get this report ready and done? And in the background, you start hearing the birthday song. It comes up again. And, and it's just another reminder of like, this man has changed. This man is reborn now. Right, and right. he's you know, living a new life. And then right, right after there, it cuts to his death. And, and like, it's just no! perfect because structurally you you think okay what's gonna happen now right you're you're excited for this change and they just cut to the moment when of his death and now you're confused or not confused but you're like wondering what what's going on right Mm -hmm. and it engages the viewer even more and that's why i think you know the second half of the movie feels so much more interesting and engaging because you're trying to figure out or find out about this man and the effect that he had by creating this park. Right, right, right. You just have so much build up, like, like okay, like here it comes. Like, I mean, the movie is like essentially his journey, and he's looking for this answer. And then when he finally gets it, you're you're just like left with like this excitement and thrill and just like compellings of feelings of like, oh my god, what is he gonna do with it? And you know exactly what he's gonna do with it. Like, you you know he's like gonna address this park issue. But then you you just don't see it and you cut to his death and you're like you just you, you you're left with craving, you're left with like what happened exactly? Like how did he go about doing this, you know? Was it successful and like did it achieve like what he wanted it to achieve for himself, you know? I think and I think it was so interesting for when it moves into that section that I mean you kinda know immediately. I mean like he dies and then 
then the deputy mayor goes outside and he talks with like the media like the journalists and then you're immediately brought like the conflict of like this part two of like oh you know that the the park was already built and he died at the park essentially and now people are questioning well we hear that he was actually the one that built it and then the executive chief is like well you know it was actually like in part of all the departments it wasn't just the public affairs division like it really has more to do with the park department right because it was an actual park you know and then you like as a viewer you're like well that's just fucked up <laughs> like that's just, <laughs> like well, what do you mean you know um and so yeah like and it's just this whole new like story essentially because now you're now we have this whole new obstacle in the story right and we're trying to figure out like well why does you know this one guy who's who's clearly an asshole now like why is he painting this false picture of something and like even the viewer we don't even know the full picture because we got sort of lobbed it from the beginning so we're trying to figure it out so i think that's why it feels like a mystery movie a little bit kind of yeah exactly and it feels like a courtroom drama in in a way that like a straight like you just have a this crowd of people and they're like all witnesses to this guy's life or to this and they're kind event. of like going back and forth and like Piecing telling up. their own piece of the story right and right. kind of challenging each other and being like hey he wasn't like this he was like this right? yeah 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 I think it was it just it's so like interesting because like they're all against Kanji like except for one guy in the beginning like even if even if they're not, like, actively... Like, the only person I'd say who's actively, like, frauding Kanji is the deputy mayor. with, And he, he just claims, like, oh, it was an effort from all of us and not just this one guy. And, like, all the other top leaders agree with him. And then they all, like, loop it back to the deputy mayor. It's, like, just, like, this one, like, lobbying collusion to, you know, like, keep this guy in political power or whatever. Right. And then they, they all leave. And then, like, really the rest happens between... Kanji's direct co-workers like all the other subordinates in each department and they all kind of like go with the claim of like oh yeah it wasn't just Kanji like he was just this old man that was sealing papers all day you know and like he wanted to retire you know he went missing or whatever um but then like one guy kind of stands up for him and as they recall the story and as they recall like Kanji you know bringing up the proposal surveying the stuff going to each and everybody's department and like just like silently begging and silently like you know wanting like getting approval from everybody they slowly realize amongst themselves how much kanji was involved in it because like you know what they what they keep saying a lot is like don't meddle in other departments affairs right like that's what everybody keeps saying it's like each one minds their own business like you know everybody keeps themselves but Kanji was the one that basically violated that meta in there. And because he's from public affairs and he goes to like park department and he goes to the sanitary department, blah, 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 and gives him the proposals. So it was really him who was the driving like wind in this thing. And they all realized like, oh, we didn't all mind our business and doing it. Like it, it took Kanji to even convince us to do our part in it. Right. Right. And then that's when like if you're thinking about like technicalities, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Everyone, every department contributed, right? Yeah, that's true. It's not it's not false, but then the real catalyst for that was Kanji. If Kanji wasn't there, no one would have done anything, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a nuance that the deputy mayor is trying to play at, right? He's like, exactly. No, everyone was doing this. (laughs) Everyone was part of this. But you know, deep down, that if it wasn't for Kanji, nothing would have happened. Right, and exactly. I think that's what really is eating away at even the deputy mayor's heart, right? Like mm-hmm. when the Kuroi women come and they're all crying and they're all like going and putting the incense at the funeral. Yeah. And and there's this intercutting between the officials and the yeah. Kuroi women. Like there's this intercut, like mm-hmm. one Kuroi woman and then <laughs> the officials. The t- yeah, and it yeah. keeps going back and forth. And you can see in their faces like this face of almost guilt or just shame. Yeah, yeah. While these women are like crying um, because of this man who, you know, basically gave his life to create this park for them, right? Right. And it just shows that even them, they can't really hide that shame that they have. Right. I think, and I think that's like probably my favorite scene is is that moment. Because like I said, just like how much of context and just how much communication that you get from like 
no dialogue in that scene. Because, I mean, literally before the uh, Krua woman come, like, the deputy chief, the deputy mayor is making his claims about that. And he's, they're going around. Yeah, he makes that big speech, right? Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, like, you know, even if it, you know, if I had to single out one person, I would, it would probably be, like, the top chief of park recreation. And he goes, oh, no, like, I didn't have to give all the credit. Like, I'd have to give it to, like, the manager of, like, all the deputies. And he goes, he goes, oh, that's so kind of you. But, you know, it really goes back to you, deputy mayor. And he's like, oh, it is like, you know, don't worry about it. Like, it's we all have a part to play in it. And then the Kuroi come in and they just don't say anything. They just bawl their eyes out and, like, have this deep emotional gratitude for Kanji and Kanji alone. Because, I mean, he was the one that was speaking and, like, for them. And he's the one that really was, like, for the town. And it's just such a juxtaposing imagery from what you just saw, you know? And it's like, oh, that's the truth. Like, that's what actually happened. And it's it's the perfect undercutting of, of his speech, right? Right, right. You don't even have to say one word. Like, the women doesn't have to say one word. Yeah, yeah. And then they just, like, leave and they're, like, gangsters without even... Yeah, and, and, then, and, then, and then the officials and the deputy mayor is like, oh, I think we have to go now. I know, there's like, a like, right. a little uh, uncomfortable for me. <laughs> I, think, I think it's our time now, um, you know... Yeah. you know my remorse you know best of luck you know thank you so much uh yeah, yeah it's great so it's just like so much like speaking in volumes you know i think for me like um like what makes just like the second part and like even the movie as a whole like that works so well from a viewership standpoint is that like it's such a pleasing ending in a way i mean like it kind of undercuts, like, the very ending really undercuts the story and, like, and the theme of bureaucracy, right? Because it's like, oh, like, everybody has this revelation and, like, we'll do better next time. And then, then Ono takes up the chief dep, uh, whatever. And then they just kind of, like, go back to the, to the status quo without having real change. But in the context of, like, everything that happens before that, it's like, you really do get, like, this huge payoff, uh, through this guy and, like, just the overall in the film. Um, and I think, like, in films in general, what makes a pleasing experience is, like, having a payoff ending and just payoffs, right? Kind of covering your bases. And this movie does that. Everything that happens is, like, meant for, like, this one big payoff of, like, of Kanji. You know, he goes on his journey and he's seeking, you know, a purpose to live and a purpose that's meaningful. And then by the end, the second act is just one big support for, you know, he has this purpose which, to build the park. And then we see through other people's experiences and recounts that it was, in fact, like meaningful and it had some huge impact. For me, I don't think it's necessarily undercutting, um, especially like the moment when, you know, they're all inspired. They go back to work and they're like, yeah, let's do something about it. But then they're all the same, right? They don't change. I think that's kind of perfect way to end it because it's showing that what he did wasn't easy. It's showing that what he did is hard and and for you to do something that's hard is meaningful right Mm -hmm. there is some kind of purpose and there is meaning in in achieving something that takes a while and and is hard to do and i think that that moment is perfect in showing that only somebody who really commits and pours their life into something can truly make a change like that Sure. And these people, yeah, they, sure, they were inspired, like, quote-unquote, inspired by what Kanji did. But unless it really affects their life in a truly revelational way, you know, they're not going to change in the way that Kanji changed. And the only right. reason that really Kanji changed was because he realized that he was going to die. Right. And it, it, the funny fact is that, you know, we all know that we're going to die. Even even that guy, the... um one, the guy who was on Kanji's side, basically, mm-hmm. he also says this. Like he's like, "We are all going to die too, right?" But then, right. like, what are you going to do about that? Like, <laughs> unless it really becomes something that you kind of really right. realize, it's not something that's going to change your life in a way that will give purpose or meaning to it. Mm-hmm. And I love that scene because that guy who was on Kanji's side stands up and he's like. Dude, <laughs> we're we're being the same way, <laughs> right? Right. But then he doesn't say he doesn't say anything, and he just sits back down, right? Yeah. And I love that scene. I love I love that moment where the camera like just starts going down with him. Mm. First level is like you see his head, you see his whole body, right? 
And then the second level, you just see his head. He goes down, and the camera goes down with him. And then there's just this pile of paper just, like, covering him. Yeah. And you, it's just a perfect, you know, imagery of the shame that he's covered with. Just, like, mountain by, like, stupid mundane work. Like, yeah. are you even going to do anything about this? Yeah, I mean, like, it, it really raises the overall kind of, like, meta question and, like, really supports the theme of, you know, just the bureaucratic system and the workplace and really invoking change, essentially. Like, you know, like you said, like, it takes really hard work. And, I mean, it's either going to take action or no action. And, you know, just because, like, this one thing happened, it's really going to take, like, equal amount of hard work to continue it to do it, you know? Right, it has to be something... Like, the commitment that comes from that revelation has to come from yourself, right? right. It can't come from Kanji. Like, <laughs> Kanji can't... Like, just because you know you've heard about that story about Kanji yeah. won't change your life in the same way. Because when you wake up again the next day, you're just going to be living your life, right? Yeah, yeah. So, that I think that's a very apropos reality of our life. Like, it, it's so appropriate to how we live our life because so many times you know you can watch on youtube some kind of inspirational video or like some motivational <laughs> video right? right and you're so inspired and you're so motivated to do something and and to make something of your life but then you know a few minutes later like, you're just back yeah. on youtube watching cat videos or something you know like right. it, it, it doesn't change your life in the way that you think it will yeah unless you really find it in yourself and and find that commitment coming from inside of you just like <laughs> kanji did Right. It's a spark and then a fizzle. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I definitely say, like, in that time, like, after the war, you know, Japan is really going into more democratic society and are really being modern and very kind of, like, westernized. So, like, this new system of kind of, like, what we see in, like, modern-day Japan as well, where they're very, like, you know, very workforce-heavy, you can kind of see, and very, like, salaryman-esque in that sense. And that kind of notion and lifestyle is really presented in this movie. And especially, I mean, like with Kanji, you know, they all just kind of like shut up and do their job. But, you know, even what they do and what they work is pretty mundane and like not even overall meaningful, you know. Like, you know, he's worked there for 30 years, but like they couldn't even fix a park <laughs> for like for this town, you know what I mean? It's like just yeah. this very like, very just like dead end job in a way that that isn't producing like any any meaningful change like within one person and just like even like outside of like as a duty in general i think there's a commentary a commentary there and just like analyzing like modern bureaucracy and like and just like work life you know environment or work life balance in that sense as well you know even with just like you know his bosses and like the mayor deputy and they they all see Kanji as like, like just as cog in this wheel kind of thing, you know. Like even when he goes missing, they're like they're not even worried about his health or like his well being. They're just like, who's gonna take his spot as the new chief, right? You know. And even when he dies, they they pin his death or they they pin the the creation of the park to as a stepping stone for their own selfish like promotions, essentially. Right. So, you know, just like that kind of collusion. I mean, another thing for me is also just like family and seclusion. I mean, there's, like, this whole thing you can look into with uh, his son and himself. There's just, like, there's a lot of detachment going on there and, like, the family home and this losing of a family and, like, real relationship. Yeah, the family aspect of this film, I think, is very interesting. Just thinking about how there are so many misunderstandings that happened yeah. that kind of kept Kanji from telling his son about the cancer uh -huh. And he, like, didn't even know until the funeral that he had cancer. Yeah, yeah. And just that fact and the regret that he has after realizing what kind of man he was. Just thinking about how misunderstood he was. They just thought he was some kind of, like, you know, going after, like, you yeah. know, sleazy old man. And sleazy <laughs> old man and all of that. And, and his uncle, too. Every single time he's like, oh, yeah, this guy is just uh, yeah, yeah. horny as hell. <laughs> basically <laughs> his uncle was like the catalyst and all of it yeah yeah and so like just the isolation within the family like you talked about um where you know family is actually supposed to be you know your closest people that you can talk to but in this case 
you know, Kanji kind of had an easier time talking to strangers, right? Yeah. And telling, telling his problems to strangers. And in a certain way, that, that rings true in our lives, too. Sometimes the most secretive things that we have, it's harder to tell our you know, people that we care about the most, too. So, right, yeah, right. Very interesting in that regard. Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely one of my favorite, like, dynamics in the movie, for sure. It's just kind of, like, understanding, like, just this Kaji being misunderstood and, like, this whole dynamic between him and his son. It's such, like, a, a funny, like, huge emphasis, but, like, low-key at the same time because he's, like, wor- Kanji worries about other things. But then... I really like the scene where, you know, he's, and he, like, Kanji longs for a relationship with his son. Like, many times there's, you know, examples of that. Like, the first time when he goes to his apartment, he catches his son and his daughter-in-law, like, talking shit about him and wanting to use his money for themselves. And he goes downstairs and he's, like, looking at the picture of his wife. And then it's, like, just this whole scenes of various flashbacks of when he was, when his son was younger and he was, like, actually, like, a father and, like, playing baseball and, like, all these things. And he's kind of, like, regretting not being a better father in these scenes because it's, like, all memories of basically, like, fails as a parent in, in like, some yeah. way, small or not. Like, at the baseball game, like, he's like, oh, yeah, that's my son, and it gets cut off, and he messes up the game, and all the other parents are, like, talking down on him, but he never, like, speaks up against, for his son. He never, like, backs yeah. him up, you know? Or, like, when he, you know, he's going to get surgery for, like, appendix removal but he never stays with him because probably work right it's just like all these recounts of like failing as a dad and wanting to like you know repay it in some way but it's like a little too late now per se you know yeah and then the son calls him he runs almost all the way up to the stairs and the son is like good night father and then he's like like, that's so devastated yeah that shot too and he's just like defeated on the staircase like exactly like he was like walking on all fours all yeah. up the staircase and he just stops in midway because he realizes that the sun you know he's just like hey good night lock the door please yeah yeah volumes man volumes like there's little moments that you can just pass by but it really speaks to the character like there's another moment when he's about to go to bed and he's like winding the alarm clock Hmm. And he, like, just stops halfway and just throws the clock away. Because he realizes that it doesn't matter whether he, you know, <laughs> wakes up on time or not. Like, it yeah, really yeah. doesn't matter for him anymore. And, like, it, those little things really add up. And when you watch it again, it really shows how much Kurosawa was thinking about these things. Right. How every moment matters and every moment adds towards the story. Like, on, another one of my favorite moments is when it's a reaccounting of, of Kanji during one of the uh, visits mm. to the departments. And he comes back out of the department and he has one of, I think it's like his secretary or somebody who helps him. And the guy is like, hey, aren't you like mad about the fact that these guys are like making you beg for like two weeks? Like, are, don't you like hate them? Like, don't you have contempt for them? And he's like, like, I don't, I don't have time to hate people. Like, I don't have right. that kind of time. Like, I can't afford to hate people. And I think yeah, that moment yeah. was just like such a beautiful moment where he's realizing that there's something bigger and more important that he has to do. And like those things are like trivial compared (laughs) to that, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 I don't have have time for these petty, petty quarrels. Yeah. Like at near the end, like when they start talking about who he was and what he really was, yeah, like it's really beautiful. Like that moment when the guy is like, Hey, I remember, a moment I had with Kanji when they were walking on the bridge and Kanji kind of stops and he's like looking at the sunset and he's like marveling at how beautiful it is. And he's like, oh, but I can't, you know, enjoy this right now. Like, I don't have time for this. It's kind of sad, but also beautiful because in that moment, he finally realizes to live in the moment, right? He's he's seeing the beauty of what's around him and and that moment. But then it's a little too late for him. And it's kind of that regret and sadness Mm -hmm. that you have there. No, yeah, hundred percent agree. I stand by part two is the best. <laughs> uh, I stand by my claim. Is there anything other addressing you wanted to bring up? What about the song? What are your thoughts about the song in in respect to the story? Really, like nail on the head. Definitely, you know, it's funny they use it so many times too. But I mean, it's very just like 
this is just like in line with the story 100%, you know? Like yeah. just thematically and everything. <laughs> just like when he sings it the first time at the at the bar and everybody's dancing and everybody's just like looking at him <laughs> like yeah, you... yo you're killing the mood dude <laughs> basically <laughs> such a mood killer <laughs> and they like try to vibe with him at first like they're all dancing and then he sings and they're like what the fuck um, yeah and then yeah. like and then the very end he sings it when he's like on the when he's swinging right before he dies like that's yeah. really yeah it's all it's all just like thematically helping you know yeah, that that song is basically the theme song, right? Of the uh, pretty movie. much that and happy that and happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> it encapsulates the movie so well. That song. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of everything. I mean, what's what's for the future of Ikiru? Well, if you're interested in a 2007 television series from Japan, that was remade. Really. And yeah, it says oh, that. I had no clue. And in 2003, DreamWorks actually attempted to remake the movie with Tom Hanks starring. Wow. But, but it never happened. But as of 2020, there is a remake to be made set in 1950s London starring Bill Nye. What? Yeah. So there is currently a development on a new remake for Ikiru. And it's just not a movie that needs to be remade. Like, yeah, what? Why? Just, just plain and simply. Like, okay, I love Bill and I. Let me let me just say this straight. <laughs> Bill and I is probably like, like my number one favorite actor, or like he's up there in top three at for sure. Like the guy is such a force of nature on screen. Like he's so great, so lovable, so funny. Like, uh, there's everything I watch with him in it. He just makes it a million times better. But to do this, I don't understand. <laughs> if anybody could do it, I guess Bill Nye, but it shouldn't be done no, in the first place. Stop. But it shouldn't be done in the first place. No. I'm just I'm why, just very why do you need why do you want to be compared to this I... movie? You know you're gonna get crapped on. <laughs> I get, but I guess that's just my problem. I don't want it to see him fail. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, so if anybody's looking forward to uh, the new Ikiru remake, keep your eyes out on that. But yeah, so we will continue on our journey. And our next film is going to be... I mean, maybe his... I mean, what's a magnus opus for Akita? Like, what is Apex Mountain for this guy? Is it this one? I mean, for him, I guess he can... He thinks it's his... Seven Samurai has the broader appeal. Right. It, it's the most well-known. So, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it yet. Don't shoot me down. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it, it'll be the first time we get to watch Mifune. Isn't that crazy? We haven't, we haven't seen a single Mifune yet. Right. Two, two, two films. Actually, you're going to see Takeshi again. You're going to see him a lot. Takeshi is basically in almost all of his movies. So. Right. He's a good, I mean, he's, he's a really great actor. He is. So and Toshida, I mean, Mifune is great too. So we'll see. We'll see what the whole talk is about. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Wait, so, so you've never watched a Mifune uh, film, huh? I know. No. <laughs> no. Okay. See, I gotta well, go you, back. You, you get to enjoy Seven Samurai for the first time, so that's wonderful. <laughs> I'm proud to go on this journey. You'll never, you'll never get that experience back. I never, I'll never do this again. See, I saved it for like perfect time in my life where I can <laughs> clearly and like wholeheartedly like understand cinema and properly like inject cinema. You know what I mean? Like I'm not 12 years old where I'm like, movies are cool. Like I like Spider-Man, but no, I could be like cinema. <laughs> well, you know, I think the beauty of akira's films is a lot of times it's not just like oh it's for the cinephiles you know it's, sure. it's very engaging the movies like seven samurai is fun to watch like even ikiru like from the moment from the get-go like it puts you into the into the story and you're really engaged in in what's happening like it does not stop for anything 
here's just straight depression for two hours. <laughs> Get your cry bottles ready. Um, yeah, so next week is, will be Seven Samurai. Um, very much looking forward to that. We'll see, see how it holds up. Uh, we will see you then. Peace. Bye.